We have a major supply deficit right now in an extremely thin market. It's not going to take a lot of buying pressure to move the price higher. And that buying pressure is absolutely guaranteed. We know how much the utilities have to buy in the next five years. And that doesn't even account for any secondary demand that's going to come from financials. And they're all setting up to squeeze. Uh, it's a very exciting setup here for the price of uranium. Hi, and welcome to Wealthy On. I'm James Conner, and I'm with Bloor Street Capital, and we have a YouTube channel of the same name, which is focused on resources and how they can benefit your portfolio. One of the resources we are focusing on today is uranium, the fuel used for nuclear reactors. And 2023 has been a challenging year for many commodities, but not uranium. It's up over 50% on the year, and it's poised to go significantly higher. What's driving the demand for uranium, and where will the price go in 2024? Our guest today is Justin Hewen of the Uranium Insider, and he will help us answer these questions. Justin, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, good to see you again. Justin, before we do a deep dive on uranium, why don't you give us a little bit of backstory on how you got involved on in this sector, and also tell us about the Uranium Insider. Sure. I, I first got involved in this sector after uh, being introduced to the thesis in 2016, pretty pretty close to the actual bottom for spot uranium, which is about $18 a pound in December of 2016, and um, was very intrigued at the contrarian investment thesis and the opportunity. Uh, back then, absolutely nobody wanted to hear about uranium. Um, it was a dead sector. Nuclear was dead. Uh, and nobody thought nuclear would come back anywhere even remotely close to the way that it has. And I, I still pinch myself almost on a daily basis to see some of these headlines about nuclear's resurgence. It's it's truly remarkable. But yeah, it went from, you know, uh, an absolutely terrible sector to just bad over the course of, you know, 2017, 18, 19. Um, and finally, you know, into the, the COVID lows and a recovery for the commodity. And the commodities bottomed at $18 a pound. Now we're here at $81 a pound. Um, I have to correct you. It's actually up almost 70% this year. It was in the high 40s at the end of last year. And now we're here at $81. And the move since the summertime has been astonishing. It's moved much more than anybody thought it would, or most people, I, I should say. There's a few um, uranium market analysts that have been in the sector for uh, as long as I've been alive on the planet that were calling for this type of price rise. And, and they were correct. But here we are with a full-on nuclear renaissance you know, on a global basis. It's it's phenomenal. Finally, multiple countries around the world are recognizing that baseload energy is important. Clean baseload is even more important. And nuclear is one of the only things that we have at our disposal to, to get us out of sort of a, a potential climate situation and have energy security. So I'm happy to see that. Um, I'm a nuclear advocate regardless of the investment case for uranium. And the miners are still relatively cheap here. I mean, we're, we're, we're certainly not in the first inning of this investment thesis, but I think we're very long ways away from kind of the speculative peak. And we've got many years ahead of us of robust demand without any real uh, supply, uh, let's say, fixes in the works. There's just not enough supply to come online in the next five years to stop what I believe is going to be a major continuous run in the, in the price and the upward price movement for uranium. And you mentioned that the price of uranium is trading at $81 a pound. Where was it in 2016, 2017 when you got involved? It bottomed in December 26 to $18 a pound. And it was kind of a slow recovery from there. It spent uh, maybe about three years from that point 
uh, before it knocked on the door of $30 a pound. And we had just kind of higher highs and higher lows since then. And now we're getting into what looks like a bit of a hockey stick type move. We might see some backing and filling here and there, but the supply is just so incredibly tight. We can get into the details of why that is if you'd like. And But um, yeah, it's it's been a series of higher highs, higher lows. It's very, very obviously clear that the commodity itself is in a, in a robust bull market. The equities are looking good. We've got major kind of long-term cup and handle type patterns here. Uh, I'm, we're looking for a big breakout in the equities. So as you mentioned, we have a, we've had a massive move here in the last few years. And so I want to start with the top-down approach to build the framework for why it's moved the way it has. And why don't we just start with the nuclear reactors, because that's what's burning or that's what's using all this uranium. How many nuclear reactors are there currently in the world? Now, I don't have the number off the top of my head. I think it's something around 450. Um but it's somewhere in that ballpark. And the global nuclear fleet consumes about 180 million pounds of uranium per year. And so there's 450 nuclear reactors approximately. And in, has that number changed in the last few years? And, and if you look out five or 10 years, what's going to happen to that number? Is it going to grow or stay the same? Sure. So yeah, I was close. There's 436. Um, it hasn't risen that much because we've had a number of shutdowns at the same time that reactors are coming online. Um, but the total uh, global capacity for power generation by nuclear reactors has risen because the new reactors coming online are much larger than the old reactors that are being shut down. In some cases, these are 1400 megawatt reactors where we're seeing reactors that are shut down to six, seven, 800 megawatts. Um, so these are very, very large reactors that are coming online. Um, under construction right now is over 60 reactors. Uh, 25 of those uh, roughly are in China alone. Um, so there's a major build-out plan. In fact, uh, the industry expects that the growth of the industry should see about 3 to 4% of compound annual growth rate uh, from here on out through the end of the next decade, which is an incredible growth rate for uh, an industry like this. And you touched on China. I'm sorry, how many nuclear reactors are being built in China? I believe it's something like 28 um, I can double check in the background here as we're speaking, but yeah, it's it's huge. China has, let's see, uh, under construction right now, they have 26 under construction, 55 operable. So they have 53 gigawatts under operation, and they're looking to have 150 gigawatts by 2035. So they're looking to basically triple their fleet in the next 12 years, and they're on pace to do it. They need to, they need to basically have eight to 10 reactors hit the grid. Um, per year for the next decade. And they're at, from all perspectives, they look to be on pace to reach that goal. So, uh, you know, 150 gigawatts, <clears throat> let's see, 150 gigawatts is going to be about 70 million pounds of uranium per year of annual demand from China alone in about the next decade. Uh, so that's that's an enormous amount of uranium right now. That's about half of the world's annual production currently this year will be consumed by China in just 10 years. Um, so they're going to outpace the uh, United States in terms of their uh, nuclear capacity uh, relatively quickly. By the end of the decade, they'll be uh, bigger than the United States in terms of nuclear capacity. So there's a lot of growth going on in with nuclear reactors, and that's going to require a lot of uranium. I just want to go through these numbers again. How many pounds are currently being consumed annually? 
currently in the reactor burnup alone. So we're not talking about inventory restocking or anything like that, or secondary demand coming from hedge funds or, or the Sprott Fiscal Uranium Trust, whatever it might be. Um, just reactor burnup is somewhere in the ballpark of 180 million pounds. That number is a little bit tricky because you have to plug in a tails assumption with enrichment. I don't know how far you want to get into the weeds with that, but that's an important part of that calculation. So if you assume um, a relatively low tails for enrichment, you're looking at about 180 million pounds a year. And that's for this year. And that's going to grow pretty quickly, not only because the size of the reactor fleet globally is growing pretty quickly, but also because the tails assay assumptions for not only just transactional um, tails, uh, tails assumptions, but operational tails for the Western enrichers are rising pretty precipitously year over year. What I mean is enrichment contracts for the later part of the decade have much higher tails, much higher uranium demand to feed into those contracts. So um, all things being equal, the same amount of nuclear capacity, you just tweak that one number, enrichment tails rise, they need more uranium to operate that same amount of nuclear capacity. So we're looking at probably pushing, you know, 190 to 200 million pounds just next year, we're probably breaching 200 million by 2025. If you're looking at um, both inventory restocking and enrichment tails, and it, it very well likely could be higher than that. And so and then how many pounds are being produced? This year will hit somewhere in the ballpark of 150 million pounds of primary production. We'll have a little bit of secondary uh, secondary supply coming from an um, enrichment underfeeding that will mostly be coming from Russia. So most of those pounds will actually stay in the East. And that matters because we do have effectively a bifurcated market here. 70% of the world's nuclear capacity and therefore uranium demand exists in the West, the, you know, kind of the OECD countries. Um, and Russia has most of that conversion and enrichment. So uh, you have about 150 million mine supply, let's say 15 million in secondary supply. So all in all, 165 million roughly. And that primary demand of 180 million from reactors, that doesn't include inventory restocking or secondary demand from financials. So even, even with the primary demand coming from reactors, we're probably still pushing 200 million pounds of total demand if you're looking at inventory restocking and secondary demand for 2023. So we're still 30 to 50, depending on your calculations, million pounds short in supply in a single year for 2023. And that's that's an interesting point. Does the market always operate at a deficit? Um, no, it hasn't. Um, <clears throat> uranium swings pretty wildly, and uh, and it has historically. And part of the reason is that there have historically been very large swings in secondary supply and secondary demand. And of course, the extremely slow pace for supply to respond to price. Uh, this is not something, this is not oil. Um, while U308 is technically fungible, it does have, uh, it does trace origin across the fuel cycle. Um, so, and it's very, very slow to come online. You just have a radioactive material. Um, it's it, There's a lot of bureaucratic red tape, even in the best jurisdictions, even in Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. where they can produce and ramp production quicker than anybody. They still have their own bureaucracies to go through and can't just snap their fingers and turn on the taps. So even when you have a price, right, we've got $81 a pound here. Theoretically, there's a lot of projects globally that could be, you know, profitable here, but it doesn't mean that we're going to see those pounds being produced next year. We've got Namibian projects, low-grade uranium, relatively speaking, that have, you know, three to five, six, seven hundred million market cap development costs and capex to get those pounds out of the ground. And it's like, okay, well, they did uh, feasibility studies over the past few years showing 
they needed $65 uranium. Here we are at 81. Are we seeing those pounds? No. And we're not going to see those pounds for three, four, five years. And that's just the way it goes. And that's the way it's always gone. So we had, you know, a big oversupply in the previous decade, and that primarily came from demand destruction following the Fukushima Daiichi accident in 2011. Japan shut off all of their reactors, 54 reactors. It was 10% of the world's demand overnight offline. Um, I mean, overnight took about 12 months to shut them all down, but you get the idea. So that demand destruction caused a lot of oversupply to come into the market. And the Kazakhs continued to, to ramp production in a major way. They peaked production in 2016. Uh, they were 100% out at the time, still uh, had a large influence from Russia, which we believe they still do. And uh, so they were just ramping production, flooding the market with production. And they also had a currency play, a rapidly depreciating Kazakh Tenge selling in US dollars. So we had a lot of above ground inventory, hundreds of millions of pounds of above ground mobile inventory. And the producers all uh, declined in production eventually towards the end of the decade. A lot of the explorers, I mean, the, the sector got absolutely crushed to the point where uh, one of the primary producers, Cameco, had to actually put one of their largest mines in care and maintenance. And they did that in 2018 with MacArthur River. That was offline for almost five years. So um, we've gone through these big swings of, of a lot of oversupply that just destroyed the market in the previous decade to now bring to today, there is basically very little, if any, above ground mobile inventory just sitting in a can for sale. It's so thin that we're seeing very, very small amounts being purchased and traded in the spot market. And we're seeing multiple dollar moves. This is this is new. We have never seen a market this thin. And I'm not just saying since I've been watching the market in 2017, you know, for the past six years, I'm, I'm talking to industry analysts that have been in this sector for 30, 40 years. They have never, ever seen what we're seeing right now. And the previous bull market, we never actually even had a supply deficit. We have a major supply deficit right now in an extremely thin market. It's not going to take a lot of buying pressure to move the price higher. And that buying pressure is absolutely guaranteed. We know how much the utilities have to buy in the next five years. And that doesn't even account for any secondary demand that's going to come from financials. And they're all setting up to squeeze. Uh, it's a very exciting setup here for the price of uranium. So I just want to unpack some of the things that you just said. First of all, you mentioned the country of Kazakhstan. You also mentioned Canada. Why don't we look at the top producers? Because as we know, when it comes to mining, jurisdiction is everything. Who are the top five uranium producers in the world in terms of countries? Uh, Kazakhstan is number one, uh, and that's pretty much by far. I believe Canada is number two. Um, Australia, number three. I might have these out of order, but it's Kazakhstan, Canada, Australia, Namibia. Um, number five currently, it's possibly Uzbekistan. Um, so, But that's pretty much where most of the uranium, uh, almost half of the uranium comes out of Kazakhstan. You know, 43% in 2022 came out of Kazakhstan and they're going to increase production. I don't think that they are going to come remotely close to their targets for various reasons, but they will be increasing their production somewhat. It's not going to pr uh, uh, provide much relief to the market because of where their uranium is being sold to primarily. Um, uh, so the, the French have a big joint venture that they're bringing online. The Russians have a big joint venture. That's going to be most of the production increase out of Kazakhstan is those two projects. And then Kazatomprom themselves, which is about half of the production out of Kazakhstan, a little bit more, they're selling more and more of their own production into China. And so that's most of the production increase out of Kazakhstan is going there. Um, Canada, they're doing what they can to increase production projects coming online there. New projects are 
much, much slower than Kazakhstan because they're typically in the Athabasca Basin. These are underground projects. Denison is actually experimenting and seemingly has proven out ISR feasibility um, in Athabasca Basin, which is quite exciting, but that still is multiple years away from producing. Um, and then, of course, NextGen's Arrow is a monster, and that's a big underground mine. That's going to take a while to develop. But those two projects should provide some relief late decade. At that point, who knows where the demand will be. So you mentioned Kazakhstan controls or produces 43% of the world's uranium production. It borders on China and also Russia. Do they sell all of their uranium to those two countries or? Uh, not all of it, but a lot of it. Because um, Adam Promise specifically has sold a pretty decent amount of their production to the West, historically speaking. So to the United States, to Canada, uh, into the EU. But increasingly more and more, so more than half of their production, because Adam Prom um, uh, specifically has been sold to China uh, just this last year, and that's going to be increasing. Now, because Adam Prom also has a number of joint ventures, the largest joint venture partner they have is Russia. They have a couple of joint ventures with the Japanese, a couple with the French, um, a, a small handful with China as well. And so uh, through these joint ventures, those various partners will sell through long-term contracts to various uh, other players in the sector. So um, the French, uh, Arano specifically, will have long-term contracts that they will sell to uh, various uh, consumers around the world. It doesn't necessarily go to one specific source. But more and more of the pounds coming out of this country, regardless of whether it's Kazatomprom specifically or a joint venture operating in Kazatomprom, will be sold into the East. And a lot of that has to do with just the ease of shipping. It's become more and more difficult to ship. And uh, one of the reasons why is the primary shipping route to the West out of Kazakhstan is it heads uh, kind of Northwest via rail to the port of St. Petersburg. And then out of there, it uh, ships by sea. Now there's been a lot of problems shipping out of Russia to the West, as you can imagine. And they've tried to establish a Western route through the Caspian and the Black Seas going through Azerbaijan and Georgia, et cetera. And that's been problematic. Um, they have successfully done it. Uh, we understand that the cost of doing so is something to the tune of 20X uh, shipping through the port of St. Petersburg. So it's not exactly easy yet. They can just send it East via rail to China. No problems whatsoever. And that's what's happening. And that's what's going to continue to happen in our opinion. So you mentioned that Kazataprom or Kazakhstan has a JV with uh, the Russians. And maybe you can just expand on that a little bit, because one of the catalysts that really got uranium going in 2022 was when Russia invaded Ukraine. And maybe you can give us a little bit of backstory on why that really started to move the price of uranium. Sure. Well, Russia is uh, the largest player in the world in both conversion and enrichment. So I'm sure your listeners are, are probably already decently aware, but if not, you can't just mine uranium out of the ground and put it into a reactor. So the, the mined uranium, which is uh, uranium oxide, U308, that's yellow cake. That's what's known as yellow cake. And so that, that has to be converted into a gas form. That's conversion. That's a, a fuel cycle service. And the product of that is uranium hexafluoride or UF6. That then can be enriched in centrifuges. That's the enrichment process. That's also a fuel cycle service. And all of these elements of the fuel cycle have, have price elements to them, <clears throat> not only to the service, but also the product. So you've got a uranium market, a conversion market, a UF6 market, an enrichment market, an EUP, enriched uranium product market, and then, of course, a fabricated fuel market. 
And all of these elements have to happen before that fabricated fuel can go into a reactor. Now, uh, there is a heavy water reactor known as the Kandu reactor. All of ca uh, Canada's reactors are Kandu reactors, and there's some in the rest of the world as well. India is building Kandus. Um, there's a couple of others in various countries. Those can actually run on natural uranium. Um, so, and they're they're amazing, you know, uh, pieces of engineering. And I don't see why we're not building more of them. But that's only about ten percent of the world's fleet. So, for the most part, most reactors need this fuel cycle process to get fabricated fuel to operate. <clears throat> that process takes about two years. Can happen faster if it's mined uranium ISR in Kazakhstan, and then it's processed in Russia. Right, that happens faster. It's an underground mine that gets uh, converted in Canada and then enriched in the EU. And that whole process can take much longer, right? So about two years on average. And Russia has about, let's see, I think it's um, in the high 30th percentile of global enrichment capacity and the low 30th percent percentile of global conversion capacity. So what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine is most of the world's um, nuclear utilities, especially in the West, because they were concerned about the market eventually bifurcating, is they secured as much conversion, Western conversion and enrichment as they could. Because most of the demand is in the West, the market pricing of these services essentially is dictated by the Western demand of those services. So we saw major jumps in conversion, major jumps in enrichment. And that's not only because Russia is the largest contributor to those two services. It's also because those two services are closer to the end product that the utilities need. So <clears throat> if you see some sort of supply constraint potential in the market, you're going to try to uh, secure the closest thing to the end of that cycle as you can for your own secure security of operations. And that would be enrichment. And so the utilities went after conversion and enrichment to a major extent in 2022. We saw the prices uh, skyrocket for both of those services. So SWU, which is separate of work unit or the cost of enrichment, that basically doubled. Uh, conversion essentially doubled. And the price of EUP and UF6, the products of those services, went up handily as well. Now what we're seeing, and we expected this as well, and you can go back and listen to interviews I did with you and others in 2022, once you secure that farther end of the fuel cycle, then you get your uranium. Because there's, no there's no reason to own uranium and not have conversion and enrichment secured, because then you're just sitting with yellow cake in a can and you can't do anything with it. You have to make sure you secure, secure those services to pull the uranium through it to get your fuel. Once they secured that, then they come after uranium. That's exactly what we're seeing right now. And the pressure in the market has come down to the uranium market. Finally, that is definitely here. Okay, so let's unpack a few things there. First of all, Russia is very important, not so much in the production of uranium, but when it comes to processing it, conversion and enrichment. And the U.S. is a big, uh, is a big buyer of those, well, not just the U.S., but a lot of Western nations that have uh, nuclear reactors. So why don't we, we talk about that? First of all, there's been a number of sanctions placed on Russia for whatever various goods and services. Have any sanctions been placed on anything to do with uranium or enrichment or conversion services? Nope, not to my understanding. Um, there's been essentially voluntary, voluntary self-sanctioning by the nuclear utilities. And they're already in the United States exists the Russia Suspension Agreement, which... 
limits the amount of uranium and uranium products that can be purchased from Russia by United States utilities. I think it's about 25% is kind of the maximum allotment. Now, the U.S. utilities buy a lot from Russia-friendly countries like Kazakhstan. Um, but yeah, it's already somewhat limited in the United States. But there aren't, there haven't been any official sanctioning from the United States or uh, most of the Western countries, to my understanding. And the reason is because Western Europe and also the U.S. is beholden to Russia for these services. They need them to operate these nuclear reactors. 100%. So given the U.S. is the largest economy in the world, we should probably talk about the U.S. and, and what, what percent of the electricity grid comes from nuclear energy? In the United States, it's about 20%. 20%. So how many pounds of uranium would the U.S. consume annually? The U.S. consumes about 45 million pounds of uranium per year. About 25% of global demand comes from the U.S. So very meaningful. And so, so when, when I hear you talk about Kazakhstan and Russia and China, I can't help but think about the geopolitical risk and the jurisdictional risk associated with, with operating nuclear reactors, but also securing this supply of uranium, right? And it reminds me very much of what happened during the 1970s and with the oil embargo, right? The U.S. and other countries were beholden to the Middle East to supply or secure their oil. And then all of a sudden this oil embargo got put on the price on oil and the price of oil went from $3 a barrel up to 11 in a very short period of time. doesn't sound like much, but that's close to 300%. Do you ever envision a scenario where this, a similar thing could happen with uranium? I mean, we're, we're approaching, we're approaching a situation here and I, I never really thought that I would be saying this, but it has played out in such a way that I think that this is possible where within the next few years, we could very well see a situation where a utility does not get the uranium that they need. Um, this is why inventories exist. Uh, this is, I don't believe we will see a situation where a nuclear power plant will cease to be able to operate because I think that there are other levels that levers that can be pulled. It's possible that there can be um, borrowing, there can be swapping, there can be lending uh, and things like that, that I think that will solve that particular problem. But there very well could be a contract RFP that just does not get filled, period. Um, it's possible that a delivery will not be able to be made and we'll have to see force majeure on some sort of contract uh, of supply. These are entirely possible. Um, that's that's just how tight things are. And you mentioned that the U.S. consumes 50 million pounds of uranium annually. Do, does the U.S. produce any uranium? It's negligible at this point. Um, the U.S. at one point in the 1980s was the largest producer of uranium in the world. Um, I, I don't remember how much I think we produced. There was something, I think, in the, in the 30 million pound a year range and possibly even higher. I think uh, for 2023, we might see, uh, if we're lucky, we'll see less, uh, you know, 500,000 pounds of uranium produced and about 45 million consumed. Um, there's a few players in the U.S. that are moving towards production, Encore Energy, um, UR Energy, uh, Uranium Energy Corporation, Peninsula. There's a couple of others that are moving towards production, energy fuels potentially, where we could actually see energy fuels actually can produce um, relatively quickly with ISR, but their their dry their dry mines and their uranium mill has yet to be that circuit has yet to be turned on. Uh, we expect that'll be turned on next year, um, probably. But either way, with enough effort and a 
sticky higher uranium price, we should see a few million pounds a year produced out of the United States. With a lot of effort, maybe in five plus years, we could see, you know, six, eight million pounds a year produced. I don't think we're ever going to produce the amount of uranium that we consume per year. We have it. Uh, there was a USGS study done in the 1990s that showed that there was potentially a billion pounds of uranium in the Arizona Strip. That's in northern Arizona. Uh, it's there. It's in the ground. Will it ever be mined? Uh, probably not. But we do have it in the ground. And at the very least, we can diversify where we're buying from. Instead of being highly concentrated to Kazakhstan and Russia, we can buy some more from, from our, our partners, our, you know, our allies, we should say, out of Canada and Australia. And we already do. And that's already happening. We're already seeing utilities spread out their risk in terms of uh, making sure that they can receive the material they need just in case something happens. And a lot of that voluntary uh, self-sanctioning that the utilities have done by avoiding new business with Russia or Russia's partners simply has to do with a concern that maybe between now and when those deliveries should be coming in, um, the situation could worsen and they could actually physically not be able to receive that material. And that's a real concern for North American utilities. And then they've diversified that risk and have started to reach out even to development projects in other jurisdictions and, and trying to secure contracts with these projects. So we're starting to see that diversity um, happen, and that's a good thing for the industry. So Justin, let's just summarize everything that we just discussed. First of all, the number of nuclear reactors is growing. And when you factor in China, it's going to grow significantly. They're going to need a lot more uranium. There's all the, the number of pounds being produced and what's demand or what's being consumed is already running at a deficit. And that deficit's only going to widen in the coming years. And you also said that there is no supply coming online anytime soon. And then when you factor in the geopolitical situation that 43% of the world's production comes out of Kazakhstan. And I guess my question to you is, where is the price of uranium going? Because when you put all of those elements together, it sounds like a very bullish case for uranium. Sure. Well, I, I want to I correct one thing that you said, because I think it's important to understand. I'm not saying there's no supply. Um, there is supply that's going to come online. There is supply that's going to increase. And we've got, um, for example... Um, a couple of companies that I mentioned will be producing a couple million pounds in the U.S. Um, we have MacArthur and Cigar that are attempting to ramp up to full production. Paladin's Langer Heinrich in Namibia is restarting. So, you know, I think they've got 25% of that goes to China, but they'll have a few million pounds a year to be able to sell into long-term contracts, which much of that is already being secured currently. Um, what else do we have? Boss Energy is going to be producing maybe a million pounds next year, ramping up a little bit beyond that if they can. The Uzbeks are increasing production. They're trying to get um, a doubling of production by the end of the decade. Will they reach that? Probably not, but they might get close. So that'll be, you know, maybe an additional million pounds of production per year going out to 2030. Kazakhs will be able to increase a little bit. So there is some supply that is going to increase in the coming years. But based on our own calculations and the calculations of everybody that we're in contact with in the industry, it's not going to come close to filling that uh, gap in demand. Um, <clears throat> and then we do know the amount of uranium that needs to be purchased by nuclear utilities just for their uncovered requirements to operate their facilities, not including secondary demand from financials, not including inventory restocking. Um, we have a major supply gap. So what does that mean for the price? It's really hard to place price targets because 
there's no, how can I say this? There's no real reason that the price is $81 a pound here. You know what I mean? Like there, it's not like there's a project that's about to come online that needs $81 a pound. And that's why the price is there. There's no reason it's 80 and not 70 and not a hundred. Like any, any price, any, any price in that range could be where we're at today. And it doesn't really change what's happening on the supply side. The projects that are coming online are already coming online. The products, products that aren't won't at 70, won't at 90 either. So where the price goes, it's like you can you can say, okay, the marginal production, the last, the last marginal pound sets the price. All right. So just like a classic commodity market trope, that last marginal pound is what the price is going. Where that's sold, that sets the price. Theoretically, that's true. What is that last marginal pound? Well, it's probably the early development stage or, or late exploration stage Namibian projects. I bring up Namibia because very, very large mines exist there. You've got um, uh, China's Husab mine, which is producing 12, 13, 14 million pounds a year. Massive mine. Uh, Langer Heinrich, Rossing. Um, there's a number of big mines there, and there will be more big mines in these development projects. Bannerman, uh, Deep Yellow, Forces, all these projects all these companies that have projects there that, by the way, these companies have been pretty quiet. We're at 81 bucks a pound here. They did feasibility studies at 65. What's going on? Why aren't they ramping into production? That's a, that's a question that we should be asking right now. Um, <clears throat> in my opinion, it's because the price isn't high enough and they haven't secured enough contracts in order to come online. They got to spend a lot of money to develop these projects. But Let's say that last marginal pound in Namibia can be sold at $100 a pound. All right. That means we're going to hit $100 a pound because that's what the industry is going to need to fill that supply gap. $100 a pound does not necessarily satisfy where we need to go based on total demand. And when we have industry players competing with financials for pounds that they actually need, that the, that the industry needs, then we could get into bidding wars. We could, there, there can be, so, okay, so to give a little perspective, the primary producers that the industry largely relies upon, because Adam Prom and their joint ventures, Cameco, Arano, Uranium One, they're basically sold out of uranium for the next three to four years. They don't have much uh, production capacity left to sell into long-term contracts. So what production capacity still exists for 2027, eight, nine, there's going to be a bidding war. And these companies know it. Cameco has pulled back on their contracting because Adam Prom is probably going to do the same. Um, they know they have something extremely valuable and the players that need it are going to have to pay up to get it. That's where we're at now. So it's not necessarily, okay, what is the fully allocated cost of production? And that's what the industry is going to pay. The companies just went through hell for the last 15 years. They're not going to produce to break even. They're going to milk this and they're going to get paid to do it. And so that's that's where we're at. There's going to be a bidding war amongst the utilities and the financials are going to be in there as well. So where will the price go? I have no idea, Jimmy. I, I really don't. And I, I don't want to sound stupid by putting a price uh, a price target out there. But I can tell you right now that $81 a pound here, inflation adjusted is like 55 in 2006. And the price went in 2006 from 55 up to 130 in 12 months. Are we going to hit $100, $200 a pound? I don't know, but it absolutely is in the cards. And how high will it go beyond that marginal cost of production? 
I really don't know. But all I can tell you is we're heading much, much higher. And I can't really tell you where that target's going to be because it's not going to make sense when we get there. And so a logical, a logical calculation of where it should go doesn't tell me where it will go. So it's a very compelling story. And as we wrap up, Justin, and we look out into 2024, what are the catalysts that we should be looking out for so we can try to gauge where the price might be going? The catalysts, I think, that are going to happen in the next 12 months are going to be more participation by financials. And it, it almost kind of scares me to even say that because we're seeing, okay, 10 days ago, we saw a $3 jump in the spot price on zero pounds traded, zero pounds traded. Just talk back and forth between uh, buyers and sellers, move the price up $3. We can see a hundred thousand pounds purchase, move the price up multiple dollars. So what happens if the financials actually smell blood in the water and start to go after this thing? It could really, really, uh, it, could, it could get pretty crazy pretty quickly. I think it's likely to happen. It's not something I necessarily want to happen. It's not something that needs to happen. It's not something that's part of the thesis that we're betting on, but it's absolutely something that can't be ignored. So I would watch out for that. There's a new fund coming online called PFYN. It's based out of Singapore. Um, they have an advisor with uh, Askar Badarbayev, who's the former um, upper management at Kazatomprom. And uh, I think the market knows that's coming. How much financial interest is there in this fund? We hear rumors of multiple hundreds of millions of initial interest. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, of course, Sprott is there. They are uh, applying for a physical redemption mechanism for their vehicle where certain industry players, utilities primarily, would be able to actually buy units of, of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust and redeem for physical at NAV. If that happens, that will be fantastic because it will basically glue the vehicle to NAV and it'll have kind of a, um, a counterintuitive effect where, yes, they will be able to uh, redeem for physical uranium, but they'll probably be buying more physical uranium because they're going to be trading closer to NAV pretty much all the time. Um, hopefully that gets approved. <clears throat> so watch out for that. Other catalysts. I don't really think we need catalysts at this point. I think, you know, Sput did the heavy lifting of buying 60 something million pounds in less than two years. They don't need to buy another pound. Um, we don't need catalysts anymore. I think here it's positioning when the market is weak. If you're not already in, um, looking for leverage in ways that you can get it. The miners typically do have leverage. We have yet to see major miner outperformance of the physical commodity. We saw that in the first leg of the market. Now, if you chart URNM against the commodity, it's basically chopping sideways and has been for the last year. Um, so we've yet to see the miners really break out. I think that they will have leverage again in this market. But um, honestly, I don't think we need any catalyst anymore, Jimmy. We just don't. Time to just let it play out. The industry players need to do a lot of buying still, and there's not a lot left for them to buy. So uh, it should be a pretty exciting next few years. And there was a great article that was just put out by uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig. And I think they made a really, really important point. They were attempting to recognize where the, this market is going to top out. And it was very difficult. They don't think we're going to see a demand. It's not going to be a demand destruction story of, of what peaks the price out in this market. And I, I, I tend to agree with them. Um, I don't think we're going to see another Fukushima type situation where whether or not we have another 
nuclear accident, which knock on wood, we don't. And of course, that would be bad in the short term for sentiment and for equities, I'm 100%. But are we going to see 10% of the world's demand for uranium in the global fleet just be like, okay, we're not doing this anymore? Probably not based on the, the elements I've already spoken about with national security, energy security, et cetera. These are very, very important assets. So what is going to top this market out? It's probably going to be supply. And there's no supply relief in the next five years. There just isn't. It's, and it's insufficient. So we're talking about Arrow coming online, Phoenix coming online, Kazakhs re reaching the full production to the extent that they can, the Uzbeks reaching full production, maybe some production uh, with the French out of Mongolia late decade into the 2030s. It's going to be multiple years before we have a supply relief sufficient to match demand. And that's probably what's going to peak the price out. So I think we have many years ahead of us of a price accretive environment for the commodity. Like I said, I don't think we need any catalysts, but keep your eyes on, on the financial players because I think that I think they're going to smell blood. And when they do, it's going to get pretty exciting pretty quickly. Well, that was a fascinating discussion, Justin. And if someone would like to learn more about you and your services that you offer, where can they go? UraniumInsider.com is our website. Um, I'm also decently active on Twitter. It's been less or so since I've been on the road over the last couple of weeks, but I should get back on there. Um, but I can be reached and interacted with on Twitter at Uranium Insider, but primarily through our website, UraniumInsider.com. Once again, Justin, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're trying to figure out your financial future, consider having a discussion with a financial advisor that Wealthion has endorsed at Wealthion.com. All you have to do is fill out a short form and answer a few simple questions. There's no obligation on your part to work with any of these advisors. It's a free service that Wealthion offers to everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Wealthion.com, and make sure you hit that notification button to be kept up to date on future events. We have some amazing content coming out in the coming weeks that will help you make financial decisions. If you would like to learn more about uranium, check out my YouTube channel, Bloor Street Capital. There's a wealth of information on there, not only about uranium, but also precious metals and battery metals. Once again, thank you for spending time with us today, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.